Welcome to the HR Resource Podcast. Hi, I'm David Lord and this is HR Resource, an online community created for business owners and senior executives seeking a trusted and collaborative networking platform. Our regular podcasts will feature specialists, leaders in their field sharing insights and guidance to help you in the day-to-day management of your business. Our first series is unsurprisingly focusing on support for business at a time of global crisis. Find out more and join our growing business community by visiting hresource.co.uk. Today, I am delighted to welcome Tim Ringo, who's going to help us solve something that many individuals, businesses, small and large, and whole economies have struggled with. It's the productivity conundrum. When we have more advanced technology, systems, knowledge and experience than any time in a revolution, why is it that we continually fall behind when it comes to our GDP, which is effectively our measure of productivity? I had the pleasure of participating in a recent webinar with Tim, which explored this very subject. Tim was invited, as I was, courtesy of the Handpick Society, and I can certainly see why they picked him. Tim has had a stellar corporate career. Here are a few edited highlights. He was VP of IBM and SAP, had 16 years as MD of Global Professional Services Business Accenture, and was heavily involved in the Harvard Business Review as a board advisor, facilitator, and conference speaker. Tim has his own show on YouTube called Tim Talk. He's a chartered fellow of the Institute of Personnel and Development and an author. His latest written work, Solving the Productivity Puzzle, a title we unashamedly stole for the podcast, not least because our logo is indeed a puzzle piece. Tim's book is out next month, and after hearing this episode, I wouldn't be surprised if, like me, you'll be wanting to pre-order. You can do so by going to the publisher's website, Kogan Page, or Amazon, and just search for Tim Ringo, or the title, Solving the Productivity Puzzle. Trust me, you are not going to want to miss this episode. At that webinar that I was talking about earlier, I have never had so many aha moments, and I've seen aha live. Don't tell Morton Harkett, but OMD were far better. Enough distraction with 80s pop nonsense. Strap yourselves in, folks, because we're going to be talking about some really interesting stuff that could genuinely make a very big difference to your business. Hi, Tim, and welcome to the HR Resource Podcast. Uh, I really, really enjoyed that webinar where we heard you talk about uh, the outline effectively of, of this new book you have. And uh, I must say, it was such a shame we ran out of time because I had so many questions. And now I've got the luxury of having you on podcasts and we can ask you some of those questions. So welcome to the HR Resource Show. Thank you very much. Good morning. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here and I'm glad you enjoyed the, uh, the webinar. No, it was tremendous. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. But really, before we get into that, how, how have you, the, Tim Ringo, the Globetrotting Executive, how have you coped with lockdown? Well, you know, interestingly, I retired in mid-April, so I retired right at the beginning of it. 
Um, and I, I call it pro tire because I'm going to continue writing books and doing public speaking and those sorts of things. But uh, I retired from SAP on April the 14th. So uh, obviously that was um, it wasn't planned to coincide with lockdown, uh, but it ended up being, um, you know, I think really fortuitous because the thing I found with lockdown is you just have to be really disciplined. And um, certainly in our household, uh, we did that rather early. And although it turned out to be, you know, almost like Groundhog Day every day, every day was the same. It ended up being a, a thing that, that you know, my, my wife and my son and I worked really well. We had, you know, fairly strict timetables and we all had our things to do in our own space in the house. And and that that worked out uh, really well. So, you know, we used the time very effectively because it's the first time, I think, since, you know, my son had been born 22 years ago that I'd actually been around for that many weeks because I've always traveled for you know 20 something years and it was really nice to not have to travel anywhere and so we use the time effectively I think the thing that's been you know the challenge is coming out of lockdown it's uh yeah it's just felt very strange when you when you get locked down for that period of time and then suddenly things open up a bit and it yeah I think that bit has been a little bit more challenging to be honest but before we, we dive into to the subject Tim I think it might be helpful because every, everybody's got their own appreciation or understanding I think of productivity I think that's part of the problem maybe there's there's probably too many of us who don't really properly appreciate it or understand it could you help us out by providing a, you know a, a sort of an accepted definition of it of productivity how it's measured in its relationship to the economic performance Sure. It's, it's a great question because when I set out to, to write a book about productivity, it was one of the first things I did, which said, right, I should remind myself. Um, I did a degree in finance, so I'm sure I saw it at some point um, during my academic career. But um, yeah, I thought I need to go see what the definition is and I'll just, I'll just read it out. And it, it's really interesting to put it in a 21st century context. But essentially, most people describe it as various measures of the efficiency of production a productivity measure is expressed as the ratio of output to input used in a production process, i.e. output per unit of, of input. And, you know, I immediately realized that um, writing a book on productivity, if, that is the cha- if that's the definition, the, writing the book is going to be a challenge because it just doesn't seem to, and maybe the listeners will agree, it doesn't seem to kind of fit in a 21st century world. So, but that's that's how we define it and that's how we measure it. And it's it's part of the problem I uncovered and um, in doing the research around the book, yeah, and 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 it's used as as very much a key part of GDP calculations. Absolutely, I mean, it's that's almost entirely what GDP is based on, and so therefore, you know, um, I had to really question my own educational background and my own experience to say, is this right? Um, you know, does this work today? And I came to the conclusion that it doesn't, um, and so I had to kind of completely you know, reframe the question or, and the definition in my mind before I started, or, you know, I wasn't really going to be able to progress, I thought, with the book. I thought it was going to be really difficult to um, to do it, to be honest. When you were writing the book, um, how did the time frame work with you and what happened with the pandemic? Did, did I mean, does the book work on, I mean, I, I suspect the, work work, the book will work very well on its own two feet, but did you have to amend it, adapt it, or, or change it because of COVID? No, I mean, I started writing it two years ago, uh, researching and writing it two years ago, and I finished it last May, so a little over a year ago. Um, So it was already in, it was well developed, finished before we ever got to COVID-19 and but it's it's looking like in the feedback I get on the book it's going to end up being a very prescient prescient timing for it because 
um, you know, to get the world's economy back on its feet quickly, we're going to have to solve the productivity problems. We're going to have to do things differently, think differently. And, you know, it sounds like a challenge, but I think it's a huge opportunity. And I'm quite optimistic in the book about how we solve the productivity puzzle. And, you know, I focus very much on understanding what's causing the problem, but I, I focus more on how to fix it based on, you know, the things that I'd seen in my in my 30 year career and working with companies all around the world. And so no, the timing has ended up being fortuitous. The, the publisher did delay it by six weeks because um, they wanted to get kind of past you know, the, the, the crisis itself. And I think that's ended up a smart move. I think the timing is going to be perfect, but no, I didn't, uh, I, I did not time it with, uh, with this situation. I think However, I have, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I asked the question because at the webinar, yeah. it, it, it was just ringing so many bells as to, as to, wow, we need to, and I mentioned about, you know, aha moments in the introduction. There were so many things that you mentioned that are that were things that were taxing me in my businesses and, and in terms of what what I've, I've been hearing other people talking about it was it was, yeah. it was on the money absolutely on the money so I think timing has very much worked for you there Tim and um, yeah you, would it help us perhaps have a have a, a sort of a very broad outline of, of what you cover in the book so um you know I, I I would set out very um uh directly not to make this an academic exercise um, previous book uh, I co-wrote with Harvard Business Review on HR analytics was was pretty academic. This one I wanted to be more conversational, based on case studies, things that you know I've seen work. Um, so I start with kind of well, you know, what's going on in the world, and you know, I saw a paper by the OECD which inspired me to write the book, which said basically they're saying going out to 2060, their their forecast is there's going to be downward pressure on the average annual rate of of GDP growth every year going out to 2060. Um, and that's not a good thing because if that happens, um, we're gonna leave our children and grandchildren uh, lower living standards than we have today. And it just didn't seem to fit with what I was seeing. Certainly I understood the challenges that they were outlining, but I had I saw more optimistic. I saw companies changing things. So just, just to kind of summarize it, they saw three things. They said, one, you know, organizations are not aligning people to technology effectively, so that's impacting productivity. Two, they're not changing their processes to align to the new realities of technology. Um, and, you know, the third one was that um, organizations are not changing their structure to adapt to technology. So, you know, these are all things that we've all seen and I think we all agree with. I think it's, it's it, they kind of just assume that's going to happen for the next 40 years. And, and I actually see a lot of change around these things. I think organizations are wrestling with these things. They were wrestling before COVID-19. Now they're particularly wrestling with it. And, you know, some are succeeding and starting to solve it. And so, you know, I kind of bring those to, to light in, in the book. And so I, I kind of focus on what are the trends, what are the things washing over us, which, as you you know, said, they seem to be very relevant at the moment because it does. It makes them, you know, more more challenging. But also bigger opportunities. And then I go through, well, here's the things that, that I think will work and, and uh, come up with a new definition of productivity, you know, come up with this idea of if you have people engagement, you get innovation. And when you get innovation, you get performance. So I call it PEIP, people engagement um, and, and performance. And I sort of anchor the book around that. So, and basically, how do you do that? Um, and then I end the book with, you know, look, it isn't all about organizations having to do this. Individuals in the workforce, you you have a um, responsibility as well. You need to push organizations to change. You can't just sit back and say, well, 
um, you know, my, my organization won't change. It's, you need to take up the mantle and help them change. So it's a two-way thing. It's not all about organizations doing it, but, you know, individuals saying, right, you know, I'm going to do my part as well. So that's where I end the book then. I just feel at the moment that um, people are looking for a way forward. They're looking for, there's a lot of talking about repurposing in businesses as well. Um, yeah. And I think the productivity conundrum is something that if they can solve, it's going to make a huge difference. So, yeah, again, as I said, on the money with, with where we are with this book right now. Um, one, one area, one question I've got, which is, is um, I know it's a subject close to your heart. Um, it's technological advancement in the workplace. And, and, and it's, it's, it's funny how things sometimes pop up in your timelines and you see something and it just sort of, you join the dots. And I saw, a, a, um, a, I was reminded of a great quote from, from the wonderful Carl Sagan, a famous um, astronomer and scientist. And it's a line from one of his last interviews. It was on the 27th of May, 96. He, day, he died actually in December, 96. Uh, but he was talking to US talk show host, Charlie Rose. Uh, amazingly now, 24 years ago, when the internet was, it was just learning to walk, um, it, he was interviewed about his book that he that introduced there called The Demon Haunted World. And it sounds quite dark. Um, but, but Sagan was really sort of exploring some really, you know, clear messages and, and his concerns about the way that the world was headed. Um, and I'm just, I'm just going to go for it. I'm just gonna, I've got a note here of, of the quote. Um, We've arranged a society based on science and technology in which nobody understands anything about science and technology. And this combustible mixture of ignorance and power sooner or later is going to blow up in our faces. Who is running the science and technology in a democracy if the people don't know anything about it? Now he goes on in the interview to talk about, you know, our, the risks of ignorance and, and if we're not able to ask questions and be skeptical about, about you know, what we're being presented. But it, it turns out they're quite prophetic words. You know, we, we have technology, we have science, we have AI, we have, you know, blockchain, we have, we have alternative, uh, augmented reality, yes, digital communication tools. How do we strike the right balance between people, tech and systems? There you go, Tim. That's a question. <laughs> I, just, I just thought, you know, we're, that that is where we are, isn't it? With with with, I think a lot of technological yeah. advances, they're fabulous. But have we really enhanced them and, and and made the most of them? Yeah, I think um, it's it's a really interesting quote, and you know, we we I think we really miss Carl these days. I oh. mean, he left with lots of prophetic things that have turned out to be true. But it'd be great to have him around, particularly at this at this moment. And my initial reaction to, to that quote is he's, he's got it partially right and partially wrong. I think that um, starting with what I would challenge, you know, he, he's, he's basically saying that, um, you know, nobody know, you know, knows anything. I, I actually disagree. I think there's a pretty good understanding of science in, um, you know, in the population around the world. I think, you know, education is, has come on leaps and bounds. I think people do understand it, and particularly the younger generations almost do understand it intuitively, you know, yeah. what it is. And, and, and so, so I think he overstates that a little bit, you know, but, no, but set that aside for the moment. I think, you know, he's broadly right. And really the question, I think what we're seeing at the moment is, you know, people not accepting what the science tells us. And I think that that's a problem. Um, and maybe why we would need him around now to help us kind of gauge us. So people actually understanding intuitively the scientific method, they would, they would have seen it in school, that sort of thing. But you see a lot of people, you know, denying what, what comes out of it. And I think that's more scary, but, but sort of saying that aside, I think that, you know, he's got his finger on it. I think we're in a time where we do need to understand uh, in a lot of detail and a lot of philosophers and, 
and economists are looking at this, we need to understand in detail how is technology going to be um, used, uh, regulated, um, made, um, you know, uh, human centric, you know, and I think these are the kind of challenges that, that that I think he was foreseeing there. And I think the human centric part is really important because too much technology is made for the technologists. But we're seeing a change now, right? We're seeing a change where people are actually demanding. And you see, I see CEOs demanding this. They want technology that is that is kind of consumer experience like for their employees. Yeah. Right. And yeah. and I think the lockdown is actually accelerated this. I think a lot of CEOs have, have seen how the technology allowed them to keep going. And, you know, what's been a really tough time. And I think there's an understanding that, well, we have to make sure this technology is aligned to the human and then the human can align to it. But the humans have a responsibility to just not sit back. They need to also, you know, create a, a bit of detente with, uh, with the technology. They need to reach out. So we kind of need to meet in the middle on, on these things. And this is what I talk about in solving the productivity puzzle, that when you get humans aligned to technology, you get fantastic spurts in not only productivity, but innovation and, and performance. So, okay. yeah. Kind of. I think a good example of of that and through the pandemic has been the proliferation of, of video calls. And yes. because that seemed to be the go-to default solution for working from home and ensuring that management continued effectively, we forgot about making a phone call and we forgot about the effectiveness of, of, of a well-crafted email or, you know, it, we, we seem to, to, to just lump up. And when we talk about productivity, it was for me, Personally, my experience has been a lot of Zoom conversations and meetings have been not very productive uh, because yeah. people haven't approached them with what am I actually going to be discussing? What what's the objective? What's the outcome? And and how we're we going to make sure that the time we spend in this is is well spent. Uh, yeah. Number the number of meetings I've been where I've just you know excuse myself because it was just going no but people feel like they are working because they're talking to colleagues on on video and maybe there's a there's a social element to that which is important and i do, do believe that's correct uh, but but i do also think and there was microsoft um have run some research which which looked very closely at the way in which um we reacted we react to things like uh, zoom calls and around about minute 30 people check out yeah people mentally have had it that's you know i'm i'm not I'm, i can't concentrate on this anymore and it and it can be quite a draining experience if you have a day full of zoom meetings by the end of it you you feel like you you've run a marathon or two and yeah. I, and I, th I think that's for me uh it's something that, that from a user experience um maybe in terms of direction of the way that you you carry on your working life is, is not necessarily um and I have been a right royal pain in the ass to some webinar platform providers because I've yet to find, uh, maybe we should have a private conversation about this to where you can give me some insights uh, with your experience. But I honestly, I mean, they all offer something, but I don't think one of them's actually really cracked it yet. No, it's it's not human centric yet. And, you know, all we've done, and it, and it took the crisis, all we've done is taken our, our analog world that we were working in and we put it onto Zoom and we tried to work in that way on Zoom, and it that doesn't work. I think it, it got us through the crisis, but I think organizations are going to quickly learn that you know five hours a day on you know which I, some of my you know friends and colleagues are saying they're spending on Zoom a day is that is not productive time. And I think there'll be a kind of step back and say, right, how do we use this technology? How do we make it more human centric? Make the call shorter, have fewer of them during the day. Don't try to take the analog 
you know, world and, and put it into the digital world on Zoom, it doesn't, it doesn't work. That's, again, back to the point, that's not aligning humans to technology. That is trying to replace yeah. Um, you know, how humans get work done and, and it just doesn't work. Um, and so, yeah, I think there'll be some, some rethinking and, and some re, uh, designing of those tools. And I think it'll need to be done because I don't think they are people centric yet. No, no, I, I quite agree with you. And, um, looking at, at other factors as well, we, we sort of like looking at the environment in which we're, we're working. Um, how, how do you think that's affecting productivity? Well, you know, um, I think that I, it's, my first observation, it's been remarkable how much um, business has been able to continue on. And I'm not sure it's quite been measured or reflected yet um, in the economic numbers, but I think it will be. I, th I think it's, it's pretty astonishing um, how much we've been able to keep doing and going uh, during this, this crisis. So I think there's going to be huge lessons learned there of, of just what worked and then obviously look at what, what didn't work. But I think it, it has not helped the people productivity issue at all uh, in terms of increasing productivity. It's, it's definitely, um, you know, people's productivity. I, I talk to folks all the time and say, yeah, my productivity's definitely dropped off. You know, at first when I, you know, went into work from home, it was, seem to be better, but it's definitely dropped off. But the, the good news is, um, is that I think it has really put a focus on productivity. Say, hang on a minute, you know, before the crisis, we weren't doing it very well. During the crisis, we weren't doing it very well. I think people are going to really ask them, okay, how do we solve this once and for all, crisis or not? And for me, that I think is a great question. And that that's what we should be asking ourselves. And it's, it's a huge opportunity. Now we've kind of seen what you know, the analog world and then the, then working in the digital world and, okay, what's working, what's not, this is good because it will drive, um, you know, a discussion and hopefully change around this because change needs a burning platform. And I think this is our burning platform for, for people change. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And there's obviously, there's the, the advantages that people gain from working from home. They've, they've dropped out that time with that they, they had on their, their painful commutes for some people. And yeah, been able to sort of have more time, but they've translated that into perhaps feeling an element of guilt and feeling they've got to sort of log on that much earlier and, and do more things and effectively burn themselves out. Where really, actually, you know, if you are refreshed and if you are focused and if you're you're making the best of the available technology and it has got a strong user experience uh, bias to it, then you might find yourself being far more productive. And it's aligning all those things, isn't it? It's, it's it is, yeah. It's not, and coming up with a different way of working. And also from the employer's point of view, um, business owners, um, build, having that trust that, that actually the work is getting done and things are happening and there doesn't need to be the micromanagement um, because people just don't, are not physically present in the office. HRE Source with David Lord and guests. They love talking about people, but in a good way. Um, I just want to take a, a step forward as well, and this sort of links to, to managing people. Uh, you mentioned a book which um, had been mentioned to me by other people, and it was a spark I needed, actually, Tim. I, uh, I ordered Drive by Daniel H. Pink. Um, it's, yeah. Several people have mentioned to me in the past, I thought, I need to read that book. It, it's... It's, it's a book that, um, if you're not familiar with it, uh, listeners, it's a book that explores and explodes myths around motivation. It can perhaps help our listeners with, with perhaps giving some quick synopsis of that and what, 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 how that impacts productivity. 
Sure. And, you know, for me, this this book was a revel, revelation and, and a revolution. You know, I think it's 10 years now ago the book came out. Uh, it just completely changed my thinking and in a lot of ways inspired this, this book. Um, you know, I think, you know, without people motivation, without understanding people's motivation, it's really hard to, um, to, to, to help them be engaged and, and to help them, you know, um, create a fulfilling experience at work. And, you know, for me personally, it helped me to say, look, I need to understand everyone who works with me or for me. I, I want to understand what motivates them. And I want to understand not only what motivates them at work, but what motivates them in their personal life. And, and Daniel Pink, you know, basically, you know, like, like I try to do with productivity, he redefined what is motivation in the 21st century. And it's interesting because he's an economist, but, you know, it is a human capital book. Um, and, you know, essentially what he found is that in the 21st century, um, we are lucky enough to be pretty far up Maslow's hierarchy. And, you know, we're not sort of worried about where our next meal is going to come from. So therefore our thinking is, is different and we have intrinsic and extrinsic motivation and, and organizations and managers who really succeed understand people's intrinsic and extrinsic. So extrinsic's the money, you know, of course you, you have to reward people. It's part of it. It's the value side, but you know, just as valuable is the intrinsic. So why do they come to work for you? That intrinsic motivation. And, and that's really powerful. And when you can touch, when you can tie into somebody's, you know, why do they come work for you? Why are they excited to come work for you as a manager and as an organization? You get tremendous amounts of productivity from that. Unfortunately, we still focus on the kind of 20, 20th, 19th, 20th century, which is, oh, if we just pay people more, they'll work harder, they'll work faster. Well, Daniel Pink showed in, in all the data that that's absolutely un, completely untrue. In yeah. fact, it does the opposite. It reduces people's productivity when they get very focused on a bonus um, and that, you know, he was very strong and we need to get rid of the bonus culture, start opening up, you know, the opportunity for equity in organizations so people get shares if it's a, if it's a you know, public sector, you know, other non-cash types of things. And, you know, that's why you've seen a lot of companies say, well, we're getting rid of performance management and these sorts of things. They're not really doing that, but they are changing how they look at, at motivating people. And Daniel created that. And yeah, the one lesson you take from the book, it's really important is that getting that balance between why does somebody come work for you? And the, the you know, the, the extrinsic reward is, is super important in the 21st century, but we're still managing according to bell curves, we're still, which, which don't work. We're still managing to bonuses and you know, it shouldn't be surprising. Um, that you know, we're, that, that's a big impact on productivity. And I go into a lot of detail in the book about, you know, why that is. Um, and essentially what I did in the book was create an equation, quote unquote, which is basically saying, you know, right people plus right skills plus right time plus right place plus right motivation. All of those things together give you people engagement, innovation and performance of so PEIP. And so that motivation one is part of that equation because it's, in fact, it's probably the most important part of that equation. So anyway, short, short story long, um, you must read that book. It will change the way you think about not only how you might manage, you know, your, your direct reports, but just looking at motivation and organization broadly. The fascinating thing for me is the fact is that the evidence was there and it's, it had been there for years that, that there'd been yeah. several studies that had just been overlooked. Yeah. You know, yeah. the groups of people that have been presented with with opportunities and, and and actually it was the fascination of of taking a challenge that motivated people, not yeah. not, not the idea of a reward. You know, it was it's the, the, the tapping into the to the human psyche, what actually you know moves and drives us on. It, it fascinates me. It's why it's why I see. I, th I think we see a lot of proliferation. Well, at the moment, there's a, there's a, there's a very high proportion of population that are involved in and, and growing in side hustles. 
Um, you know, they, they've got yeah. projects, they've got they've got business, little businesses on the side. They've got a they've got a career, they've got a job, but also they've got something else that they're interested in. And I, I don't know whether that's telling us that people are sort of multitasking in a different way, or or they're not quite getting out of their working life enough. Yeah. There is something else that they're seeking, and I think it might be the latter in part. But yeah, wrong. I might be wrong. I mean, thinking about the the motivation as, aspects as well, leading on to another factor in, in the 21st century that, uh, that, that we seem to be evolving into is, is the fact that we've got so many generations uh, working in the same location, potentially. And, and it's something I'd written about. I wrote a book, Managing Generational Diversity, uh, which is just a sort of scratch of the surface. And, and I know you talked about it too. And it was my question, actually, I was waiting to ask you, we ran out of time. It was about the generational <laughs> diversity. Um, yeah. In the current workplace, I mean, with so many, you know, from baby boomers to, to Gen Zs, you know, what what do we need to do in the workplace to be able to make adjustments to accommodate? Generally? Yeah, yeah. So um, in the book, I outline ten trends that are impacting productivity negatively, but they are also opportunities, right? And so one of them was uh, the whole, um, you know, six generations in work or the emerging workforce, as I call it. Um, but specifically the six generations in work at once. So as of June, mid June this year, we have, um, six generations in work at once for the first time in human history. Um, and the reason for that is you now have people over 74 in industrialized, the age of 74 in industrialized, um, countries that um, there's enough of them that you can say, okay, that's a proper workforce now. It's grown dramatically. So in North America, for instance, it went from 14% uh, around 2014 to it's almost 24% of the workforce in North America at the moment. And so you've got this kind of 17-year-olds to 74-year-olds. You've got these six generations. And and I looked at it and said, well, this this could be a challenge, but I think what, what I've seen in my career is it actually is, is really, really important to embrace these different generations. So one thing I've seen is that the older generations, the more senior generations, they love it when the younger generation reach out to them and say, hey, tell me something you know, you know, tell me about how to do this. And those two generations on, on the bookends um, create this productivity by, by you know, sharing and, um, and spending time understanding, you know, each other. And so far from it being, they're being sort of, you know, sort of wary of each other, they're actually reaching out to each other. And I think we need to encourage this. This is really important because it's part of the thing that solves the productivity problem. You know, you have to figure out how to recruit a 74-year-old. You have to figure out how to get a 74-year-old engaged. You have to figure out how do you, you know, how do you, um, you know, remain, you know, create accessibility because, you know, those of us who are a bit older, our eyes aren't as great anymore. But, but people are, are much healthier, much longer and want to work. And it's the first time really in human history that that's happened. And it's a, it's a massive opportunity to solve the productivity puzzle. Well, one of the things that I identified in my research book was the, the average tenure uh, and how yeah. that's shifting. Um, and, and it was declining across all generations, but, uh, but the average baby boomer would, would think nothing of, of having an average tenure. Most would have an average tenure around eight years, whereas yeah. Gen Z are falling below two years and, and, and falling below that even further. So that surely is going to have an impact on productivity. And it seems that, that from that perspective, businesses are maybe struggling to engage with and retain. And I know it's still a very new generation, so the, the data is still quite fresh. Yeah. I think that is my, from my, and I've got 
um, a, a millennial and two Gen Zs in, in my family, my, my, my children. So I, I, I know that from my perspective, how they look at work and how they look at their, their employers. And they're looking for something a little bit more than a salary. They're looking for a business that has more to offer than that. So yeah. what's your take on that? Would you, would you agree? Do you think that's, that's how, how the, the workplace is at the moment for, for the younger generation? Is that it's, it's, they're asking more probing questions rather than what, what they can get paid? Absolutely. They're, they're demanding that organizations, you know, um, look at their intrinsic and extrinsic um, motivations and, you know, saying half of why I'm here is because I've, you know, I'm totally tied into what you do, your purpose, your mission. And you can get people to stay longer. Um, I, I, I do, you know, this tenure thing, I think, is a challenge. It's a problem when it comes to productivity, because when, when you bring in somebody new, it takes time for them to get up to speed, you get them up to speed and then they go, that does drain productivity. And so we do need to lengthen those tenures and that's up to organizations to understand, you know, what the next generations are looking for and tapping into their intrinsic and extrinsic motivations. But there's a flip side to this. When, when people are regularly, you know, changing jobs, um, they, they, you know, their, their engagement with their job goes up dramatically, right? Because it's new, it's something they want to do, they chose to do it. Um, and so you see an increase in their in their productivity. Now, what you want to do is retain that person for as long as you can. And say instead of a two-year tenure, you get four years from them. That's a tremendous, um, uh, you know, factor in improving productivity. So try to keep those people engaged and keep them longer. But recognize that they'll probably go. You know, I, I grew up in Anderson Consulting Accenture culture, which was always you will go somewhere else eventually. Um, you know, and so that was kind of, you know, seen as a bit strange in the 80s and 90s. But today it's, you know, it's kind of the, the normality. Yeah. 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 And so I think there's an opportunity. Again, there's an opportunity there, but we have to recognize um, you know, that, that people are going to move around, but can we do something as organizations to lengthen the tenure by, you know, a couple of years that will definitely help improve um, productivity. Cause I know from painful experience in terms of recruitment, it's an expensive process, especially. It's very <laughs> so if you get it right and you've got a good one, then, then really yeah. effort should be put into to keeping them. Do you, do you have any examples, Tim, of organizations that, uh, that have solved or are certainly well on their way to solving the, the productivity uh, challenge and, and maybe and the puzzle if they, they maybe maybe at the very least collected all the edge pieces that's sort of like working on the middle bit or, or maybe yeah. puzzle all in, entirely. Well, I, I, I talk about quite a few, um, you know, examples in, in the book because I said I made the book about, you know, solutions and showing people what can be done. And yeah, there are a number of organizations that I, I really rate. And, you know, um, you know, one of them, you know, I worked there for, for four years, but I was already a fan before. So IBM, IBM, you know, uh, Lou Gerstner, when he came in, uh, he wrote the book, I think called Elephants Can Dance, if that's the right title. You know, he just had an intuitive understanding of the power of of leadership and and engaged people. And he essentially used that to save IBM. Um, and so, you know, IBM put in place from, you know, from the 80s through to today, you know, a, a really good, um, you know, human capital experience. It's integrated, um, you know, from, from the time you join to the time you, you, you leave or retire. You know, it's, it's the organization is giving you clear objectives. The organization is giving you opportunity to, to learn, to achieve those objectives. They're using social technology to get everybody engaged and collaborating. They're getting right people, right place, right time which I talk about in the book extensively. And they do this really, really well. And they initially did it just with a mindset and processes. And, and that's all you needed, really. But then over time, they built in the technology that, that then underpinned all of this. And so that's essentially the solution I describe in the book, which is this, 
this kind of approach that I've seen at IBM and, and, and other organizations. And, you know, um, you know, I, I just think they're a really great example of a company that, that, that does it very well. I, I've just come from SAP. I was there for five years. You know, they've been implementing that same approach. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's starting to show fantastic results for them, you know, getting that, that, you know, right people, right place, right time, right skills, right motivation. Um, and they've underpinned that with, you know, with their own technology and, and, you know, the user experience is, is consumer like. It's, it's easy t- to understand, you know, they've got people aligned to technology very well and, and SAP as well. And then I talk about, you know, other, other organizations that I've seen in, in North America and, and, and other places, um, that, that do this, do this really well. So there's examples of it. Um, you know, not all organizations get it right the first go. Some organizations lose the way along the way. But if you're if you're at least trying and you're getting at 50, 60 percent right, employees see that they're going to stick around. Right. Um, and, you know, that's that's kind of the two organizations I would use um, just on the, uh, on the on the podcast. here. OK. And just thinking about measures, benchmarking for for businesses. I mean, I'm thinking of things like NPS, the Net Promoter Score, customers, yeah. ranking their experiences of business, Glassdoor where employees can have a good old whinge and, and mark down their bosses, probably just sack them, probably justifiably, we don't know. But, you know, the, the, these, these platforms, and of course, Google reviews and other, you know, sites, platforms that are effectively getting a star rating for an organisation. What, what, what store do you set in that? And, and is there anything that a business should do to, to address that if they've got a negative score? Or do you think you know, there's much time to be spent on, on those, those platforms? You know, I do. I think they're open to manipulation, um, which I think is unfortunate. And I know those companies try really hard to take to get that out. But I would say broadly, it gives you an idea of what you know the organization is like. And I certainly, you know, go and look because I've worked across many organizations over the years. And when I go into like Glassdoor and you read, it, it's like, yeah, that roughly seems about right. And the thing you're seeing emerge at the moment is you're seeing people, you know, particularly, you know, younger people or people sort of halfway through their career talking very much about what's the, what's the user experience like, you know, what's the, what's the human capital experience like in the organization? Looking at all aspects. It isn't just pay. It isn't just, you know, health insurance. It's, it's looking at the, you know, the, the mindset of the organization, the technology, the, you know, the kind of the whole picture. And you're seeing people talk more and more about their experience in the company, which is really like what, you know, customers do. They say, what was your experience and, 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 you know, buying from this particular organization and employees are, are really looking at organizations that treat them almost like the customer, right. And, and value, you know, their, uh, their contribution and then also value their, uh, their, their viewpoint. So I think these are useful. Uh, I think you have to just t- take a bit of a grain of salt sometimes, but I think broadly they are. And the organizations that are being successful, the ones where you're seeing people comment and write in there about, yeah, my experience, you know, overall, this organization is really, really good. And that's kind of the ones you want to say, yeah, have a, have a look at those ones, right? Yeah, yeah. And in, and in terms of what you've touched on there about their overall experience, things like um, well-being programs and, and looking after the physical and mental health of, of staff, that's seems to be a growing movement. Do you, what, what, what value on that? I'm thinking now again about uh, where we are with the pandemic. I'm, I'm guessing you yeah. certainly a value in these initiatives. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm right on the edge, literally, um, uh, of, of being a baby boomer Gen Xer. So I straddled those two generations and, you know, I would see baby boomers, um, you know, they would, they would look today at this whole 
wellness and, and health and that's kind of, they would look at it and say, oh, you know, just work harder. Um, now I'm being a bit unkind and generalizing. I shouldn't do that. But, but, but what I'm trying to describe is my initial attitude when I started writing the book. You know, this was an area that I had in my 10 trends to look at. And I didn't rate it very highly. I thought, you know, this is just kind of hygiene factor. It's not a big deal. But my, my wife kept getting, giving me articles on, on the subject. She's like, Tim, you really need to pay attention to this. So I did, I went and spent a lot of time and, and research and I got an opportunity to meet, um, Ariana Huffington, who, who leads up the, the Thrive Initiative, which is all about getting more sleep and your health and well-being. And it quickly rose up almost to the top of the most important things when it comes to people productivity. So I went from being a, a pretty big skeptic to, I think this is probably in the top two or three things that organizations must do well. It's not health and safety. It's, it's well-being in the totality yes. um, that, that this is about. And um, it's not just words and slogans. It's leadership actions. It's, it's leadership, you know, walking the talk. It's putting in place, you know, technology to help people putting in place things. And, and one of the big things that's going to come out of this, um, this crisis is managers who had high EQ, um, during the crisis, I've been very good at looking after their people. And those people are going to be superstars in their career. People are going to never forget that that manager looked after them, you know, when they were having trouble doing homeschooling and, and working. And, you know, so I think it's also about the management, right? So management, you know, also behaving in a way that helps people with their, with their well-being. And those with high EQ are going to do really well in, in the coming, you know, 10 years. Yeah. And I, and I also think the well-being movement was hampered probably in the early days and maybe occasionally still with organizations that see it as a tick box exercise that there's a, there's a sort of feeling that it's almost like a unionized view that we must have this in our organization well okay then let's do it but they do it reluctantly as opposed to doing it wholeheartedly and, and seeing it for what it really is which could be something that, that helps to have a much happier workforce much happier workforce more productive workforce that's, yeah, you know, uh, it's one way to look at it. But I like you. I'm on that cusp, Gen X. <laughs> just, uh, just, just snuck into the into the Generation X there, and, and and I've worked with a number of baby boomers, and I can I can I can hear that word, those that that view of of where they see the well-being, or certainly historically. But I think now we are starting to see. So there's this. We mentioned them before, but the the Generation Zs coming through. Uh, with an expectation of, of working in an organization that really cares. And I think that, that forms a big part of it. So thinking about the health and talking about um, the, the well-being, let's think about the pandemic. And let's say if Boris, uh, Mr. Trump, angler, Xi Jinping, uh, or maybe more likely the, the impressive uh, Jacinda Ardern over in New Zealand, find a cure for COVID. Let's say that you know, Jacinda does it, cracks the code. Uh, and as some scientists come up with a cure, what will life be like going back to uh, to work once we've once we've cured it and there's no more pandemic? Let's say that's that's let's be positive positive here and say that's going to happen. Will will it will we ever get back to where we were, or is it going to be permanently? Is it going to be a completely different world now? You know, I um, come down on the side that I think the world is going to be um, changed forever by this, um, but not in the kind of places you might think. Um, I think it's going to be um, a change in, in mindset and in terms of people realizing how quickly, you know, things can change. And I think you're going to see organizations be really, really focused on being ready um, and be really, really agile. Uh, you know, agile has become kind of a, you know, a byword for all sorts of things. But I mean, I think you will genuinely see organizations say, we're not going to get caught out again. And they'll create playbooks from this, right, for anything that might happen in, in the future. 
Um, I, I also think that we can, we can solve COVID, but there are going to be other pandemics. I think this is going to be something that is going to be a somewhat regular, probably, you know, every generation occurrence. I think, I I think about the bubonic plague uh, popping its head up somewhere in Mongolia and then, then in North America. Which is yeah, I, I, I do believe, and, you know, this is not the big one, as they say. I think this was, this is, was the warning one, right? And, you know, I think that, you know, I think society and organizations are going to be very, and governments can be very wary now of this. And I think that's a good thing, right? They're going to be on the watch for, yeah. for, for this one. I think the other thing that's going to change is, and you touched on it, which is I do think that managers and I'm hearing and seeing this, are, are kind of getting much more comfortable with just letting their teams get on with it um, without, you know, seeing them for months at a time. I think that has been a really positive, and I think we're going to see that continue where I think you're going to have at least a generation or two generations of managers who are really comfortable, you know, with, with giving people autonomy to get things done. Um, and so I think that that's going to change. And I also think you're going to see a real acceleration of you know human-centric digital technologies, I think we're gonna. Or there's gonna be things that come out we don't, we're not even thinking about right now that are gonna come out of this pandemic. Um, you know, as you mentioned, it could be some sort of Zoom platform that is that is much more like how people work, right? Instead of being kind of a facilitator, it actually is more intelligent. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how that might look, but uh, and I think we're gonna see a lot more intelligent technology um, that's gonna align itself to, to humans. And I think you know that is that is all gonna get accelerated. And then lastly, I'll just come back to the health and well-being thing. I think that's going to become permanent now. You know, it's going to be, it's not a feature anymore. It's going to have to be absolutely uh, a must-have in your organization. And, and not only that you have it, but it's effective. Um, and I think that's that will change. One of the things I put on my Twitter at the beginning of the pandemic, I asked to put a poll up and said, will the handshake disappear permanently? Uh, so I said, is it permanent? Is it temporary? Uh, you know, and um, yeah. you know, no, it'll never, it'll never disappear. And it was really interesting. There was a, there was diverse opinion on that. Um, you know, there's some health experts saying the handshake should go away. Um, it's, it's the one of the communicators of flu and colds and you know that sort of thing. And by the way, it's a Western, you know, um, culture. Uh, you know, a, a third of the world doesn't use handshake, right? So ancient, the ancient heraldic throwback. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, I wonder if it, if something will change around something as simple as the as the handshake. But that will be important for managers to have EQ to say is maybe somebody's not going to be comfortable going forward handshaking. Right. I think that's just you know, will that change forever? That's more of a question than a than a statement. But um, yeah, those would be the things that I would say. So I think we're we're potentially going to see some very positive technological and human change come out come out of this this tragedy. It sounds like we. We're more than ready for your new definition of productivity here, Tim. Um, but we've got we've got a number of listeners, um, business owners, CEOs of businesses listening right now, hanging on every word. And they, they, they you know, let's say they've identified some problems with their productivity, or that they might even be unaware of really extent of, of how productive they're being, other than the fact they've got some instinctive views about it. What what would you say the first thing they should do before all else? What's the priority for them right now? So I would adopt a completely new um, definition of what productivity means in the organization. And I'll just put it out there for, for, for the listeners, which is one I put in the book, which is, you know, instead of the one that we heard earlier, which was about inputs, outputs, et cetera, um, it, it's, it's a more three-dimensional one, I think, which is, I call it, basically, it's getting stuff done that measurably improves the economic and human interest of organizations and society at large. So it absolutely encompasses the physical value side, but it's also about 
you know, the wellness and goodness of the organization and society at large and people at large. And, you know, all of these things together, right? So people, you know, engagement produces innovation, innovation then produces um, performance, which produces economic value. So it's, it's putting it in that broader, more three-dimensional um, sense. So how do we do this? So the first thing I would do if I were you um, is I would, um, and I think this is really important um, short-term goal, which is to um, get a strategic workforce plan in place. Um, we've been too long in this kind of hire fire binge where when the times are great, we hire loads of people. And then when times aren't so great, then we get rid of loads of people. Instead, what we should be doing, which I think creates tremendous engagement in an organization, is have a strategic workforce plan for every six months. You know exactly how many people you're going to need. You know how many skills you're going to need, you know, what type of skills you're going to need, and when you're going to need them. And use that to get the right people in the right place at the right time with the right skills. And do that not just you know, in this crisis to see how many people you're going to need in, in the very near future, but do it as an ongoing thing. And I talk at great length about this in the book, which is one of the key things to solve productivity, um, you know, getting right people, right place, right time. And then you add in, you know, right skills, right motivation. Um, that's the thing that you should focus on. And if you want to make it really tactical, work with the HR folks in your organization on a strategic workforce plan for the next six to 12 months. And I would bet if you're thinking about potentially cutting heads, you won't do it because you'll quickly see that um, you're going to need those people. You're going to need those. People. Yeah. And so that, that's what I would say is really, really important. So. Excellent. No, I, I, I love that. I love that. Tim, this has been very interesting. We're, and, and almost, in, uh, you know, where, where are you on timeline? It's it's 40 minutes plus that have gone through, but in a blink of an eye, we could probably do another 40 minutes. <laughs> it's time for you to take a much needed break before um, everything gets very hectic for you with the launch of the book, the book, which I understand is the 13th of August. That's correct. Yeah. And then 23rd in the rest of the world. Yeah. I'd like to thank you in the midst of taking some of that downtime, but taking the time for us to, to, to talk today. It's been fascinating. Uh, I'm sure the listeners are going to greatly appreciate it. And I have really enjoyed talking to you again. What I would like to do is just give you an opportunity to let people know how they can, how they can find that, uh, that new book. Yeah, so uh, very easily, you can go on to timringo.com uh, and you can order it uh, through the links there. You can go on to Amazon, uh, which you can order it from. You can also go to Kogan Page, uh, which is my publisher, and uh, you can pre-order it um, from there. But it's only a couple more weeks till it uh, till it comes out. So yeah, you can find it um, in any of those locations. And, and apart from the, the a major priority for Mr. Tim Ringo right now, which is to, to have some downtime and chill in, uh, in Cornwall, what other projects do you have in the pipeline? What else is, is happening in your world? So um, I'm writing my next book at the moment, which is called The Accidental Globalist. Um, I've, I've uh, been fascinated by the debate around globalism recently, and, and you know, it's even more intense now. Uh, and it just kind of takes a lighthearted look at both sides of the, of the debate, which people are saying it's terrible, others saying it's greatest things in sliced bread. And I kind of take a middle view that says, well, you're both wrong. Um, and, you know, it take, it kind of comes from a, a young man, myself, back in the day growing up in Ohio, you know, seeing the impact early as a young man about globalism. And my, my family worked in the uh, car factories and the impact that had. And it's, it's just kind of taking a look at it in a, in a fairly lighthearted way and saying, look, you know, you're both right, you're both wrong. And, you know, is, perhaps there's a middle way here. And so it's kind of describing it from, from my experience as a, as a young man in Ohio and then as a corporate executive flying around the world. And so it's going to be a little bit of lighthearted fun, but have a serious point as well. 
Sounds good. Listen, Tim, for me, this has been certainly one of the more productive podcasts, uh, a very productive podcast. Thank you for sharing those insights. Best of luck with the new book coming out and future book and, uh, and your future projects. Great. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, David. Thanks, Tim. Find out more and join our growing business community by visiting hresource.co.uk. Thank you.